The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, Springs Church. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We want to welcome you uh, here this morning. If you're joining us in person, we want to welcome you. If you're visiting, you are most welcome. Um, we ask that if you wouldn't mind, in the bulletin, there's a QR code, and you can scan that and, and fill out a little bit of information for us. We'd love to get to know you more. If you're joining us online, welcome this morning. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ rest upon all of you. And especially to our mothers, happy Mother's Day. Oh, that was poor. That was weak. Okay, so for all the guys that forgot it was Mother's Day until you woke up this morning, here's your chance to let you some redemption. Happy Mother's Day. There you go. Thank you very much. We are grateful uh, for mothers. I can't imagine life without mothers in the world. And speaking of mothers, we have some really good news. Uh, Brett and Laura Vanderzee had their baby girl this past Friday, Evangeline Joy, which means, means the good news of joy. So we celebrate with the Vanderzees. We're very happy for them. They're doing well. Everyone's doing well. And we're very excited about that. This Wednesday night, so a couple announcements. This Wednesday night is Welcome Table. Welcome Table, May 11th. So invite your friends, invite your neighbors, you guys to join us in the gym for a meal and fellowship together. We've been welcomed by God into his household, and so we want to be a place of hospitality and welcome. That's what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's hospitable as well. There's also, uh, coming up, beginning in June, we're doing our summer series where we're going to have guest speakers come in. Uh, and this, this summer series is going to be titled Hope in Action. We talked about hope earlier in the year. We've talked about it a little bit throughout the year uh, as well. And we want to have people come in and talk about from their own place, what does hope look like? Hope is a verb. What does hope in action look like? And one of those, because there's going to be a number of, of, of people that come in and, and give us a message, a word from God. But one of those is Richard Beck. Some of you are familiar with Richard Beck. He's a professor of psychology at ACU, but he's also a very famous blogger and has published several books, particularly in the area of, of um, spiritual life. And one of his most recent books, he's going to come and he's going to preach one of these, on, actually on Father's Day. But then on Father's Day in the afternoon, so you can start making your plans for Father's Day, give you time to go out to lunch and do your Father's thing. But then later in the afternoon, we're going to plan a time to come back, and I think we're planning on having child care. He's going to do a special class, kind of in the theme that we've been doing, uh, that we started with the God and uh, science and faith conversation. He's going to talk to us about faith in the age of skepticism. He has a new book out. Get ready for this title. The title of his new book is Hunting Magic Eels. You should be intrigued or freaked out. The subtitle of that is Rediscovering an Enchanted Faith in an Age of Skepticism. So he's going to talk about, particularly from his, he says, I'm from a very secular discipline. 
and the type of psychology does. And he wants to talk about his own journey, about rediscovering an enchanted faith in an age of skepticism. So we're hope you begin. We're going to announce that a little bit more, but I hope you're going to make plans to be with us for that. We are a church that is being transformed in the image of Christ so that anyone can find their way to God. We do that three ways, by gathering in the name of Jesus, by gathering in the name of the Father, like we do this morning, by growing into the image of his Son, and by going by the power of his Spirit. And this year, we are focusing on go, going in the power of the Spirit. And the sermon series that Brett and I have been in, and that you've joined and walked along with us, is your story, Scripture and the Mission of God. And has two meanings, your story, meaning first God's story, God is your story, and then the God story becomes our story, becomes your story. So today, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21, it says this. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll. Gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Father, as always, we give you thanks. For your word is life to us. And God, this whole morning is sacred to us. But we take your, this time and your word to be sacred in our lives. We know this is a holy moment. Not because of what I do or because of what everyone else does in this room, but it's a holy moment because we believe that your word actually is speaking. It is alive and among us this morning. We confess that. And upon confessing that, we ask for ears to hear. We ask for hearts to follow. We ask for lives and bodies that will obey. And God, I ask for the gift of preaching. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. My brother and I had a very good friend. His name is Leland Howe. And there were many, many years ago that Leland and my brother Adam decided they were going to go hike Mount St. Helens. My brother was living in uh, Portland, Oregon, and so they wanted to go climb Mount St. Helens, which, if you remember, erupted, I think, in 1980. So it's this beautiful mountain with this huge crater in it, and you can hike up it. It's a a challenging hike, but you can hike up and back in one day. So Leland and Adam, they'd done this hike before, and so they decided to hike up this one day, just the two of them. Well, as you're going along... You, can, you hike up a ridge, and there's these posts, I don't know, probably about a quarter of a mile apart. And it kind of guides you. This is where you stay on the path. And it's important, relatively important that you stay on the path because 
not that there's like this path you can see, but you stay near the post because there's a lot of dangers on this mountain. There's crevasses. And if you start heading down and you're thinking you're going the right direction and you veer off to the right just a little bit, by the time you get to the bottom of the mountain, you may be a mile from where your car is and totally lost. So they're hiking up, and as they're hiking up, they see this guy hiking down who had a GPS tracker. They didn't have a GPS tracker. And the guy said, hey, you guys, you're close to the top, which they knew they were fairly close to the top, but just want to let you know there's weather rolling in. So don't get up there, don't be up there too long. So they go up to the top, they see the view, you can look down into the crater, and sure enough, the weather rolled in far before they even expected it. So much so, they were enveloped in cloud, and it was a literal whiteout. My brother, they couldn't see the posts anymore. So they weren't sure which way they were supposed to go. They're completely lost. And to add on to that, the, the snow was so heavy and blinding that my brother, he couldn't even really see. He was almost like disabled. So not only did he, could he not see the post and where to go, which direction he was supposed to go, he literally was almost disabled because he couldn't see. And he said, all I could think about was getting back down to the mountain, back down off the mountain and getting to a secure place and getting home. Luckily, he had Leland with him because Leland was a fairly experienced climber. And while he couldn't see the post as well, he knew where he needed to go. And Leland came prepared. Well, Adam didn't have any, anything to cover his eyes and he couldn't see. Leland says, I got this. And he pulls out his ski goggles and puts them on so he could see. And Adam just put his hands on Leland's back and they walked down the mountain. Sure enough, they got to the bottom where they were secure. And they made it home. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke wants to show how the story of Jesus is the fulfillment of the long covenant story of God and Israel. And even bigger than that, Luke wants to show that it's the story of God and the entire world. Early on in Luke, he does this, the genealogy, which is most uh, of the Gospels. Matthew does this. They do, they do the genealogy. Matthew does this in particular. But in Luke's Gospel, it's a little bit different because Jesus said Jesus descended from David, which is a way to say that he's king, that Jesus is the king. But then he goes back even further. He says he descended from Abraham, which is to say he's the king that blesses. Because you remember in this early in the sermon series, right, that, that Abraham and his descendants were to be a blessing. And they're blessed all people. But he goes even further than the Gospel of Matthew, that he goes all the way back to Adam. He says he's descended from David, which means he's king, but he also is descended from Abraham, which means he's the king that blesses. And he goes all the way back to he's the descendant of Abraham, which he's the king that blesses all of humanity. And I think it's interesting that he goes back to Adam. Because while he doesn't say this, when you go back to Adam and that story, 
God says that Adam and Eve were made into his image, the image of God. And what's interesting in Luke, that I think while Luke doesn't talk about the image of God, he recognizes that there is something about humanity in the world to where in many ways they don't resemble the image of God anymore. And so in Luke 4, it says this, he went to Nazareth. Where he'd, be, where he'd grown up and he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it he found the place where it is written the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind he has set the oppressed free to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what's interesting about how Jesus announces his mission is that he takes the prophet Isaiah and he reads this and keeping in mind that he's the king that blesses all humanity and the humanity is made in the image of God. There is something about this text which recognizes there's something lacking in this image. Think about the kinds of people that are in this text of Isaiah. Poor. Prisoners. Blind. Oppressed. These aren't things that God intends for humanity. And Luke emphasizes the social implications for this. If you think about Jewish society and you think about Roman society, the question becomes, are the poor, are they at the very center of Jewish or Roman society? No. They're way out in the margins. Are prisoners at the very center of the importance or honor or, st or stature in Roman or Jewish society. No. That's why we put, that's why people go to prison. They're like, uh-uh, you're out. That's, that's what that's intended to do, to say you're out. The blind, are they at the center? No. In fact, we have stories of blind beggars. Where are they always? They're outside of town. What about the oppressed? The very description of their situation says, no, they're out. They're not at the very center. They're not at the very center of Jewish or Roman society. They're at the margins of it. And one of the things I think we need to understand is that when, when Luke uses the word poor, by the way, later on in the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say poor in spirit. He literally says poor because he intends for these social things to be like it's poor. But poor in Luke's mind doesn't just mean someone that lacks money. It could mean that, but it's not just someone that lacks money. There are several things that poor include. You could have actually lots of money, as we're going to see from tax collectors. 
but they're considered poor. If you have a low social status, so for example, if you're disabled, if you're a woman, children, the elderly, if you are suffering in some way, that's the poor. If you're a social outsider from a different ethnic group, if you're not Jewish, you don't have the right identity. You don't have the right purpose. You are poor. Or if you're an outsider, in other words, if you've made some poor life choices that have put you outside the religious circles, you're poor. But I want you to also notice another term that's used. He says that I have been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And that word freedom also connects with this last phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That freedom actually is the same word that means to release. So Jesus' mission is to come and to release the poor. And when you hear poor, hear all of those things that I just talked about. This idea of freedom or release, the year of the Lord's favor, this comes out of the book of Leviticus. This is straight from uh, the law, the Old Testament. This is what he's, he's talking about, the year of Jubilee. If you don't know much about the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25, we'll go on to Leviticus 25, says this. Count off seven Sabbath years. Seven times seven years. So that the seventh Sabbath year amounts to the period of 49 years. Okay, so for you guys that aren't math majors, don't worry. You don't have to do awesome math to understand this. Because then he goes on to say this, then, then have the trumpet sound. After the 49th year, have the trumpet sound. Have it sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the 7th month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land and consecrate the 50th year, every 50 years. And proclaim liberty, proclaim freedom, proclaim release throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. This is the year of Jubilee. It's that every 50 years, there's a release of debt. Wouldn't that be awesome if that happened for us? Hey, by the way, I heard an Old Testament scholar say one time, there's no evidence. Scholars say there's no evidence that Israel actually practiced this. And then he turned and he says, but it's not too late to start. There's a lot of things that Israel didn't practice. Every 50 years, debts are canceled so people don't suffer under permanent, they don't suffer under debt permanently. It's release of slaves. So they can fulfill their person, their, their purpose as God's person in the world. We're meant to be slaves in that sense. 
And there was a release of land so people could go home and be secure. And so Jesus, in, in reading off Isaiah, Jesus is sent on a mission to not only proclaim this jubilee, this release. Jesus has come to fulfill it. If there's not a mic drop moment, when Jesus gets up and he says, this reading has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom. I don't know what is. He's going to recover the image of God and everyone and set them free to live it out. Now, one thing you need to understand that in Luke's world, there is the world of the Pharisees and then there's Luke's world. The world of the Pharisees is the Jewish world, the religious world. Now, you've got to remember, Luke is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And he's very careful and subtle, sometimes not even subtle, to say, there's a difference here. Because the way that the Pharisees view the world is this. They describe the world as one of guilt and condemnation. The lost are guilty and are condemned to a certain social location. That's how they see the world. It's guilt and condemnation. So if you're suffering, you must be guilty. You must be guilty of something. If you're disabled, you must have done something wrong. If you are one of those Gentiles, then we know you did something wrong. To be a Gentile is not a good thing. But the world of Luke and the world described in Luke 4 as seen in Isaiah, it's, experience, it's this experience of being lost. But they're not lost because they're guilty or because they're condemned. While they may be guilty, that may be true that they might be guilty, but they're not guilty, they're not lost because they're guilty or condemned. They're lost because they lack power and they live in a world where they're constantly afraid. So you have these stories that happen right after. There's this story in Luke 4, 31-37. It says there's a demon-possessed man. And this guy is suffering for all kinds of reasons. One, he's possessed by a legion of demons. But he's experiencing incredible isolation, loneliness, anguish, fear, anxiety, hopelessness. He's lost. Then in Luke 5, he goes on to talk about Jesus encountering this man that is paralyzed and brought on a mat by his friends. His legs don't work. His legs do not fulfill the purpose God intended human legs to fulfill. And his life is defined by what he can't do, not by what he can do. Then the very next story is one of Levi, the tax collector. His name is Levi, which is the name of the tribe that is the priestly tribe for Israel. 
and he's a tax collector for the Romans. Levi actually means to join together or to unite, but he actually doesn't do that at all. He, in fact, makes the divide even worse between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he goes searching for security. And Levi's actually a long way from his home, his ancestral home because of what he does. And Jesus calls him home into a new community, into a new kind of security. He releases the demon, possessed man. He releases the disabled person. He releases Levi the tax collector. In our world, there's, I think there's two different views of the world. I've been looking at this and studying it for a long time. I think there's the church's view of the world, and I think how the world views itself. And I want you to distinguish the two. And Luke, I think, helps us do that. For the longest time, and this is true, by the way. There's nothing to feel guilty or ashamed or bad about this at all. But for the longest time, the, world has, the church has framed the world in this way. Guilt and condemnation. That's how they frame the world. So the problem in the world is people's guilt. The problem in the world is condemnation. And Jesus comes and forgives us of our guilt. So if you're not a Christian, your problem is guilt. But in the world, I don't think the world sees themselves that way. They're like, well, maybe they should. Well, maybe they should. But I guarantee you they don't. Because I go around asking my college students all the time, do your friends feel guilty? Nope. They don't. Now, I'm not saying they're not guilty, but that's not how they feel. Well, what's, what's their biggest concern in the world? And their concern is not guilt and condemnation. Their biggest concern is fulfillment and purpose. It's emptiness. Now this goes with how we've thought about evangelism for a long time. If you've ever heard this phrase, I teach evangelism, so I've heard this phrase in the past. Have you ever heard this phrase? That evangelism, you've got to tell them the bad news before you tell them the good news. Have you ever heard that? Some of you that are older have heard that. Which what that means is, you've got to tell them how guilty they are before the good news actually makes sense. My question is this, isn't there enough bad news in the world? Does Jesus have something to say to people that already inherently know there's bad news in the world? I do this little survey. It's called Theological Worlds, and they actually, there's this five of them, and they actually go through. And one of them is guilt and condemnation. But of all these college students that I've done this, and I've done this for now for like, seven or eight years, that all the students, once they take this, this little inventory, the number, one, uh, the number one category that comes up that students end up identifying with is not guilt and condemnation. It's emptiness and fulfillment. That is the number one thing. And it's no wonder that 
in 2002 that one of the New York Times best-selling books for over 90 weeks was a book by Rick Warren, who's a Christian pastor. It's called, anybody know the name of that book? The Purpose Driven Life. Now, I don't say too much about that book. Part of it is it's been critiqued. It's like, how is this like one of the all-time leading best-selling books? It's not even the greatest piece of, great piece of literature. But what Rick Warren figured out was that he hit a nerve. People knew the bad news of lack of meaning and a lack of purpose. We're seeing more and more that people... They're going to change careers four to six times in their life and change jobs over 12. Now, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but one of them is a search for meaning and purpose. The lost, what defines being lost to the people out there and to actually people in here? Because if you're over 40, you talk to someone under 40. And I guarantee a good majority of them are going to talk about this. This is what they're going to talk about. This is what the world is experiencing, is being lost. The second thing is this. They're lost, are suffering, and they're just trying to endure there's another category in these five when I do this inventory. The second one that is actually more recently that's come up, it's actually got guilt and condemnation. Students, even church students. It's not guilt and condemnation. The second category they fall into is what's called suffering and endurance. It's just that life is throwing you all of these things and you're just trying to endure Loneliness, trauma, mental illness, relationship problems, rejection, discrimination, marginalization, or just the simple fact you just can't catch a break. Anybody ever feel like they just can't catch a break? I know we have this phrase like, oh, my problems aren't as worse as other people's all oh, first world problems. Hey, yeah, that's true. Let's go around the room and ask. You ever feel like you can't catch a break? The third way that people feel lost is that they're searching for a home. They're searching for an identity. They're searching for a relationship. They're searching for love. If Luke's world defines it as the poor and the prisoner and the blind and the oppressed, our world is people that are lost because they're struggling with meaning and purpose. They're struggling with suffering and how to just catch a break in life and endure. They're struggling with this. They're searching for a home, for an identity, for a relationship, for love. Take the story of Zacchaeus. He is searching for something which comes up later in the Gospel of Luke. And I guarantee his theme for life is the U2 song, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Because when Jesus comes walking along, what does he do? Do we need to sing the song? 
Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Come on. He climbed up in the sycamore tree, a Savior for to see. And as the Savior came walking by, he looked up in the tree and he said, For we're going to your house today. For we're going to your house today. And at the end of that story, Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. He's searching for a home, he's searching for an identity. Son of Abraham. He's searching for relationship. He's searching for love. And it just so happens, ironically, that he finds it at his own house. And the home of the universe walks into his house. And then Jesus says this. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is what Jesus comes for, to seek and save the lost. And there's actually several parables that talk about this. I mean, it just goes over and over. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathered together around and hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until it's found? And when, he, and when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. Now remember, everybody that falls in those categories of poor, prisoner, lame, blind, oppressed, they're all considered sinners. Sinners are in need of transformation. Poor people, prisoners, disabled people, oppressed. People searching for meaning and purpose need transformation. People who are suffering need transformation. People are searching for home. They're looking for transformation. And he goes after that one sheep, seeks out that one sheep that is vulnerable, that is suffering. Maybe it's lost because it's hurt because he throws it on his shoulder and he walks home with that sheep. Then he goes on to say this. So suppose a woman has ten silver dollar coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the whole house carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. The coin has lost its purpose. If it is hidden and lost, it doesn't have a purpose. It's lost. Or finally, the next parable is of the lost son where he says, I'll oh, forget my father, I'm going to go off. And he looks for a home, he looks for, he looks for security, and he, and he squanders all his wealth, and he finds, it, he finds himself in the pig pens. And then it says this, that when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. 
I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father said to him, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, I've sinned against you and, I, and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robes. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. A sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He's lost and now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. God, he goes off searching, looking for something. And once he decides to go back, he sees, the father sees him a long way off in the distance, which means he's been looking for him the whole time, and he runs to him. And not only does he find security, not only does the son find the security, but a home that celebrates him in the ways, in ways that he has never imagined before. God sent Jesus to seek and save the lost jubilee the restoration of the image of god i mentioned my friend leland at the beginning of this sermon what you don't know about leland while he saved my brother that day leland lived a life of incredible suffering we're pretty he played football when he was young and while it's not we're not sure. We're pretty sure he had that traumatic brain thing that happened. He suffered with incredible depression. And not only my brother, but people who loved him, people that were God's people, they walked with him through his depression. Leland lost his sense of purpose. It's kind of because of this brain injury. He had suicidal ideations. He'd call people way out in the woods. They'd go find him. Just go sit with him. But he found purpose in his family and his friends. He became an incredible artist. In fact, Mike Cope invited him to come speak at Pepperdine and show his art and talk about. He found purpose. He lost his sense of home and security. But the people of God surrounded him and gave him security, gave him a home. And on June 2nd, I got a phone call, June 2nd, 2019, that Leland had died. And he died of natural causes in his mother's home. And he was home. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. Here's what it means for God's people. That God's story is to walk with people in their suffering, and that our story is to walk with people in their suffering and their loneliness and their trauma and their rejection and their relationships. Jesus gives people purpose. That's what he came to do. And as God's people, 
on mission with God, empowered by His Holy Spirit. We're to lead people towards purpose, mentoring and discipleship. Jesus came to give a home, identity, relationship, love to those who were outside, that didn't have it, that were searching for it, whose theme song was U2's, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There are so many people that are right outside these doors. There are so many people in here, even God's people, that are searching, that are suffering, that are trying to figure out what's my meaning and my purpose. Where can I find a place? Can I find a home? And it is our mission, because it's God's mission, to be a place that provides security, identity, relationship, and love. You know, we talk about me and God's missional people. That's what the world is looking for. That's what world needs. God's story, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to offer release, jubilee, to restore them into the image of God that God created them for. And your story, our story, is to love lost people, to seek and save lost people, to offer release, to offer jubilee, to restore them into the God's image in which they we love lost people because God came to seek them, to save them. Let's stand and sing.